Well, it is now less than a month until Christmas, that day when we celebrate the birth of Jesus. The entire world, whether it likes it or not, revolves around this single moment in all of human history, dividing time between the years before Christ was born and uh, the, the years of his reign, Anno Domini. That's what AD means, the year of our Lord. Uh, and he is the king of the world, as well as the king of the Jews and the king of my life. And uh, whether you believe in him or not, Christmas is coming and you need presents. Uh, presents for your friends and even just a gift to yourself to increase your own enjoyment, understanding and wisdom. And what better way to do that than with books? Well, as one of the side hustles to this ministry and, and mission, uh, I have a brand and a business called Lock Press, and it helps to reward the authors and the thought leaders who are writing and thinking. And one of the things that's true about Australian politics and Christianity is it is not profitable. It is very hard to make ends meet, feed a family, and uh, pay the bills being a conservative thought leader. Well, part of Lock Press's mission is to help conservative authors self-publish, and thereby they get a much larger share of the profits. Uh, and so in this episode of The Church and State Show, I'm going to introduce three books which are being published before Christmas, which I recommend to be on your uh, Christmas wish list. The first is Good People Break Bad Laws by Topher Field. The second book is Supreme Injustice, Guilty Until Proven, Not Catholic by Father John Fleming. And the third book is The Unlucky Country by Professor Augusto Zimmerman and Emeritus Professor Gabriel Munz. Stay tuned. These are three interviews and introductions to books that you should be buying for yourself and for the people you love this Christmas. This is The Church and State Show, and I'm Dave Pello. May all that you stand for and that we stand for be preserved under the providence of God for the happiness of mankind. The trouble is caused by unthinking people who carelessly throw away ageless ideals as if they were old and outworn machines. But it is the values of individual liberty, equality before the law and the supremacy of people over the state to which we can always with confidence return as a powerful and uniting force. Australia is not a secular country. It is a free country. Well, first up in the list of books that you must buy for people you actually like this year at Christmas is a book by my good friend Topher Field by the title of Good People Break Bad Laws. Welcome to the last Church and State episode for 2023, Topher Field. Well, thank you so much, Dave. And may I say, I would advocate people giving this book to people they don't like as well, especially if you pre-order and you get the signed copy. Imagine the look on that person's face <laughs> who just hates me and hates what I stand for as you hand them a signed copy of my book for Christmas. I think that would be well and truly worth the price of entry. Uh, in fact, a special request for everybody buying this for people who are pro-Dan statist uh, COVIDophobes, uh, please buy this book and take a photo of it uh, as of the person who the statist as they open this book and realize they are seeing a defense of uh, all things small government and, and liberty. Uh, Topher, jokes aside, good people break bad laws. Now, 
that is an interesting statement. Um, do good people break laws at all? Um, and you know, what, what's the thesis behind the title? Well, this has been a debate that's been raging for thousands of years and certainly for hundreds of years within the Christian church or thousands again, but, but within the modern church, uh, it rages still to this day, this question of whether the, whether Christians and whether people, good people, ought to just obey every single law. Now, if we accept that idea, then we accept that government is going to dictate absolutely everything that we do in absolutely every aspect of our lives and that we have no ability to push back on that and we must do as we're told. We don't see that in scripture. We don't see that in the Old Testament. We certainly don't see that in the New Testament. We certainly don't see that in the history of the Christian church. Good people break bad laws is basically my five word summary of something that was said by Martin Luther King Jr. He said, one has a legal and moral obligation to obey just laws. Conversely, one has a moral obligation to disobey unjust laws. And what I did was I took that that idea because I agree with it and I, I think is absolutely correct. And I distilled it down for the TikTok generation, the short attention span generation. I, I distilled it down to just five words, good people break bad laws. How does that actually work? If I'm, you know, so for example, I can think the, the one law that I found the most benign, the least impacting on me, I just didn't like it, mm. but I couldn't see anything immoral about obeying it was uh, the, the mask mandate, sure. that I have to wear a mask when I'm driving in the car by myself. You know, we, we can argue about the futility of it, mm. and, I, and I thought it was complete waste of time yeah. and, and disgusting. Um, but I couldn't say that it was a immoral law like uh, taxpayer funding for industrial child, sac child sacrifice, sure. abortion. Sure. So, so there's a, a number of things we need to take into account. Firstly is the fact that your conscience and my conscience are going to be in conclusion all of the time. And we need to allow grace for that, especially amongst Christians. We need to allow grace for the fact that your conscience is going to require of you maybe slightly different things than what mine will. But I'll say this, there are two tests that I offer in the book. One is utilitarian, that is to say practical, and the other one is principles-based. The practical test is this. Does obeying or enforcing this law cause more harm than breaking it? If you have a law where the obeying of it will cause more harm to people than the breaking of it will, then you have what is a bad law. That's the practical test, the utilitarian test. There is a principles test as well, which simply asks, does the government have the legitimate authority to tell me that I need to do this? Now, if we believe in limited government, and any Christian should, because we understand the government to be under God, and therefore it does not have purview over absolutely everything, there are limits on case, then we have to accept the idea that, that when governments overstep those limits and overstep those boundaries, that they have to be pulled back into line in some way. They have to be limited in some way. And the reality of history is the only thing that limits government is when the people reach the limit of their obedience. We can have bills of rights and separations of powers and Magna Cartas and all sorts of different things. In the end, they're just dead letter on a page unless the people are willing to change their behavior when the government oversteps its bounds. So there's the two tests, the practical and the principle. And in order for a law to be valid, in my view, it has to pass both of those tests. It has to be correct in principle, and the government has to have legitimate authority that is actually going to lead to good outcomes if it's followed. So walk me through how it actually works. And, and let's again uh, use the, the example of mask mandates. Mm. Uh, if I refuse to wear a mask, mm. how do I how do I actually uh, not just do it because I want to indulge my my will and my preferences, mm. but 
how do I use civil disobedience as a tool yeah. to actually affect good outcomes? So this is really important. And the way that you engage in civil disobedience is really, really, really critical. The purpose of civil disobedience is to prick the conscience of the oppressor and to make other people join your cause. So if you if you decided that wearing a mask was against your conscience, and for those that are thinking, well, how could that possibly be against your conscience? Let me give you an example. During the COVID era, we had an enormous amount of down on the community and a lot of people bought into that fear and they believed that they were in mortal danger because of the amount of fear mongering that was going on and not wearing a mask for me was it was essentially me reaching out to those people and saying you don't have to be afraid you don't have to live in this fear this fear that has gripped you that is not of god at all does not have to be the thing mm. that dominates your life so for me it became a matter of conscience to show faith and to show hope and to show a smile in a, in, in a world that was filled with fear. So that's why for me, my conscience eventually led me to the point, not initially, I wore masks early on, but my conscience led me to the point where I just couldn't anymore and I, and I wouldn't. So the purpose is very important for why you're doing it. You can't just disobey laws because you don't like them. You can't just drive on the other side of the road because you don't like driving on this side. You are going to hurt people. You're going to cause people enormous harm. Uh, and it's you're being disobedient to scripture at that point as well. But when your conscience requires you to do something, to stand up to something, you then have to do it in such a way that has the opportunity to prick the conscience of the oppressor and to win people to your side. So what I did was I made sure that when I wasn't wearing a mask out in public, I was the friendliest, nicest, uh, most welcoming, genial, kindest person that the other person would have come across that day. I made sure that I was on my absolute best behavior. And if I was in a bad mood for whatever reason and I couldn't be on my best behavior, you know what I did? I put a mask on because I knew that in that moment there was too much of a risk that I wasn't going to be able to model the kind of graciousness that was necessary in my view for that civil disobedience to work. So on the right days, I would go shopping with no mask and I would just be the nicest and friendliest and happiest and most joy-filled person that the others came across that day. And that was a way of me pushing back against the fear. I love it. Uh, I have a T-shirt, uh, a design which got taken down and, mm. and cancelled uh, by Redbubble because it was uh, anti-government. Mm. Um, but it was a T-shirt that says government is the pandemic and that's superimposed on the silhouette of a mask. Yeah. And I would go into Bunnings with their, where, while mask, mask mandates were in place mm. with no mask on my face mm. and this T-shirt mm. um, on and just being super happy and friendly. Yeah. And, uh, and the staff are like, hang on, he's not trying to cause trouble. Um, what do we do here? Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. it was, uh, Naomi uh, did not like going with me uh, <laughs> at all when I was uh, thus dressed. Um, tell me, for those people who have no problem with masks mm. uh, and, and think, look, there's no harm here, and they believe the, the government narrative that there's massive harm uh, in, in not wearing a mask, mm. Um, and, and that you are effectively the same as driving on the wrong side of the road if you choose to uh, disobey that law. Mm. Why should they respect your right to disobey that law? Sure. I mean, this, this is, these sorts of debates are always going to happen on any contentious issue. Um, and, and them respecting my right to disobey a law is kind of irrelevant to me. Uh, I'm, I'm going to disobey those laws because my conscience requires me to. And this is the crux of it. We are responsible with our consciences before God for what we do and for what we don't do. If their conscience has no issue with the idea of wearing masks, go ahead and wear masks. And I, you know, I used to push back on people who were on my side, but they would give people a hard time for wearing a mask. Oh, what are you afraid of? Don't you know that masks don't work? 
completely counterproductive. Completely counterproductive. Don't give people a hard time. Firstly, you don't know anything about them. They might have a compromised immune system or they might live with someone or work with people who have compromised immune systems. They might have bought into the fear. And the last thing they need is to have a confrontational interaction with someone else who's not wearing a mask because, you know, they're so afraid of what this magical, mystical virus might do to them. So my first point would be, for those of us that are choosing to disobey, we need to, to obey and not make really negative assumptions about why they might be choosing to obey. As for the going the other way, history as a guide would tell you that, that they won't have any grace. The, the obeyers tend to have zero grace towards the disobeyers. There tends to be a very, very low tolerance for that, especially in Christian communities. And this is part of what my book, Good People Break Bad Laws, is designed to change. It's to give people a, a philosophical and a moral framework for civil disobedience and to encourage people to understand civil disobedience, even when it's on issues that you don't agree with, is a net social good. And we need people to engage mm. in civil disobedience on all of these contentious issues because that's actually it's, it's as essential to the political process as free speech is. You know, people who, who, who don't want you to say things won't extend grace to you when you say things that they don't like. But whether they like it or not, it is essential to discerning the truth and to making progress as a, as a society. And so is civil disobedience. It is exactly the same principle as what applies to freedom of speech, applies to freedom of, of political disobedience. In your book, you argue that if we believe in any kind of limitation to government, that one of the tools we have to have in our, in our quiver of options uh, to mm. fire in defense of limiting government uh, is limiting obedience to government. Now, mm. that is very counterintuitive to good Christians who read and believe, uh, you know, the mm. epistles to the church, uh, Romans and, and Timothy and Hebrews about honouring and submitting and, and respecting mm. those in authority, mm. that God has ordained those uh, authorities. Uh, now, I don't believe, and, and I don't think many people believe that that's a blank check to all governments Obviously, there have been sure. very evil governments in history. But talk me through the, the I guess, the theory of mm. how limiting our obedience to government will help us limit government. Yeah. So my next book is actually going to be Good Christians Break Bad Laws, and I'll be diving into the <laughs> theology of this, Romans 13, 1 Peter Are you serious two. or joking? No, I'm absolutely serious. It's, oh, that's, <laughs> I'll have that out before the end of next year. Um and that's a that's a theological defense of civil disobedience and and a, a treatise on what God is actually saying when He talks about you know in Romans thirteen and First Peter chapter two and Timothy and elsewhere. And what you'll find is the way that those verses are preached today does not actually match up with the way that the people who said those words lived. Look at Paul, look at Peter. They disobeyed the civil authorities over and over again. But there's a there's a number of crucial keys here. Firstly, their default position was obedience. They only disobeyed in the areas where it was their conscience that required them to disobey. You don't disobey because you don't want to. You don't disobey because you're in a hurry. You don't only when your conscience requires you to disobey and for no other uh, uh, reason and never for any personal gain. If you're doing it for personal gain, well, you're just a common criminal. Uh, You've got to be doing it for reasons of principle and because your conscience requires you to. Now, how does disobedience lead to, how does limiting our obedience lead to limiting government? Well, let's look at all the other ways we've tried to limit government with separations of powers, with bills of rights, with uh, magna cartas and constitutions and these various things. They all fail 
because ultimately humans are fallible and humans love power and people in power always want more of it. So the government by default is always going to... And the the only real signal, the only effective signal that we have back to them to say, hey, you're reaching the limits of our patience and, and there's going to be trouble soon, is to begin to reach the limit of our obedience. Now, unchecked government power leads to tyrannies. And we've seen some of those throughout history. They're absolutely awful things. And by the time you get to that point, the only way to push back is by violent means. It's it's with revolutions and things like that. And those mm. are even worse. Yeah. Uh, we, you know, a lot of innocent people die. A lot of horrible atrocities are committed under those circumstances. The role of civil disobedience is to avoid that terrible outcome by limiting your obedience in non-violent ways, ways that are calculated to prick the conscience of the oppressor and to undermine the oppressor. You, if you do it the wrong way, you will legitimize the oppression and you'll make it worse. But mm. civil disobedience done for the right reasons in the right ways is essentially a last-ditch effort to bring things back before more desperate means need to be employed. And honestly, none of us want to go there. And so this is why I'm urging people to engage in civil disobedience. Brilliant. Um, it sounds like you're being very sensible and, and balanced about it. And uh, and I think it's important that people who even disagree with uh, you and the whole premise of civil disobedience or, or the extent to which many people took it, um, hear the best arguments for it and against their yeah. own position. And, and uh, you know, you've um, engaged in some good public debates on on uh, my platform and, and many other platforms as well. Mm. Uh, and, mm. and I think it certainly stood the test of examination, if not, if not with full agreement, then at least that you're not some sure. cracker who's off his nut just with you know, revolution mm. on his mind, but actually sober mm. and in intellectual about the approach to this theory. Um, so, mm. Well, thank you. And can I mention another book that, uh, that's been published by Locke Press that I'm reading at the moment and um, really does dive into Christian civil disobedience, uh, and that is Defending Conscience. And I don't remember the authors off the top of my head, but I'm sure you'll be able to fill in your viewers. Uh, Defending Conscience, highly recommend it. It looks specifically at the Anabaptists and the Baptist Church and, and some of the history of, of church and the, the concept of liberty within that particular context. But in no way am I some outlier. I'm actually building on Correct. Uh, hundreds of years, indeed thousands of years, of Christian Correct. theological history uh, and political philosophical history as well. There is a long and uh, and very, very valid train of thought that has led me to this particular point where I am today. And, and all I'm hoping to do is to take a lot of these ideas and distill them down into a very readable, very digestible, very approachable book that, that can really help other people to catch up with a lot of that without having to read through the heavy stuff. Well, you can buy this book, uh, Good People Break Bad Laws uh, by Topher Field, a great Christmas gift, and uh, make sure you get one for yourself and, uh, and, and for everybody you love and loathe. And you can get that from Lock Press. The details are on the screen yeah. now, but that is L-O-C-K-E-P-R-E-S-S dot com. Good People Break Bad Laws from LockPress.com. And when you use the discount code LOCK, L-O-C-K-E, uh, you will get a wonderfully arbitrary 14% discount uh, to make sure you can buy uh, 10 and, uh, and get as many as you need for all the people that you like at this Christmas. Uh, and you can also get Defending Conscience from mm. LockPress.com. Topher Field, thanks for writing the book and uh, thanks for your voice in this issue and uh, have a very Merry Christmas. 
And to you, thank you so much for dedicating your last episode of the year to myself and, and some other authors as well. Uh, to your entire audience, thank you so much for your support. And I look forward to future Church and State events. There, uh, For me, they're unmissable events now. Every time you invite me to one, I'll be there with bells on. Uh, please keep up the great work. Brilliant. So having said that, you will be at uh, next year's Church and State Summit, 8th and 9th of March, uh, selling your books in person and signing them there. Is that correct? Yes, and that's going to tie in very closely with the tour that I have going between Melbourne, Sydney and Brisbane as well. So it's going to be a very, very busy time. But yes, I, I have, the, I do have, now that you've reminded me, I do have those in the diary and I will see you there. <laughs> Brilliant. Topher Field, thank you and uh, see you later. All the best. Well, joining me now is a self-publishing author uh, whose books will be available for sale on lockpress.com. And that is Father John Fleming, author of the book uh, Supreme Injustice, Guilty Until Proven Not Catholic. Father Fleming, welcome to The Church and State Show. Thanks, Dave. Now, I was startled and horrified when you told me in our phone call yesterday uh, what the prosecutor, uh, the person who was defending the newspaper that you alleged defamed you, uh, what he had to say about your integrity and character based on nothing more than your identity as a Catholic priest. This could have been almost for any Christian of any denomination with the prejudice currently in the community against Christians, against Christianity, both evangelical and Catholic. In my case, as a Catholic priest, what was put to me from the beginning of the cross-examination by the lawyer for the other side was that Catholic priests can lie, and that as a Catholic priest, I would lie. Now, he began with referring to a doctrine called uh, wide uh, uh, mental reservation. This, was, this is not unreasonable. What do you do if, for example, you are a citizen in Germany in, say, 1939, and uh, the SS comes to your door and says, uh, do you have such and such a person who is a Jew? You would be justified in not giving a straight answer that is, uh, he is not here by which you have a mental reservation, he's not here for you. Because you know that if you say that he is, he will be uh, arrested and sent to a camp to die. There would, that, so that's been around since the 12th century. Is If you've got a, a conflict between the truth and justice, you have to let justice um, predominate. Now, there came later a discussion in the 17th century about what was called a uh, strict mental, mental reservation. Now, I won't go into the detail of all of that, but suffice it to say there was a wide discussion, free discussion among Christians at that time, and the Pope finally intervened and said, look, the doctrine of strict mental reservation, really what you're saying is you can tell a lie. And I'm saying to you as the Pope, that offends the Ten Commandments. You cannot tell a lie. That is a willful, intentional lie for, to serve self-interest. So now, what was put in the, to me was that Catholic priests could use strict mental reservation. 
a doctrine which had been reputed, it was never a doctrine of the church, it was an opinion that was bluntly repudiated by ecclesiastical authority and had never been in discussion since. The last time it was brought up was in a, uh, an anti-Catholic uh, attack on uh, John Henry Newman, who is now a saint, saying Catholic priests could lie on, on system and that he, Father Newman, as a Catholic priest, could lie on system. And that led to a, a great contretemps into his famous book, Apologia Pro Vita Sua. Bottom lining is, was put to me that as a Catholic priest, as a Christian man, I could tell a deliberate lie to protect my own self-interest. When this attack on me began by way of cross-examination, I had a deep sense of foreboding that the anti-Catholic prejudice, anti-Christian prejudice generally in the community was going to be visited upon me because everyone knows Catholic priests abuse children. Supreme injustice, guilty until proven not Catholic, is Father John Fleming's uh, autobiography, self-written, self-published, uh, about the uh, defamation case that he lost uh, against reporters and uh, publishers in South Australia who accused, uh, published as if true, accusations of historical sexual abuse. Uh, decades old, uh, thoroughly denied, uh, and which the police had shown zero interest in because of the complete lack of evidence and complete lack of reliability of testimony. Uh, now, the, the Brigginshaw precedent is something that I'd not heard of, Father John, before you told me about it. Uh, so tell me what the Brigginshaw precedent is, what it means uh, in brief, uh, and uh, why it should have been used and relied upon in your court trial. Well, in the first place, we know that if you're charged with a criminal offence, the proof has to be to, at the highest standard, proof beyond reasonable doubt. In a civil matter, and me suing somebody for defamation is a civil matter, mm -hmm. the standard of proof is proof on the balance of probabilities. Now, in a case going back to the 1930s, a High Court judge, Mr. Brigginshaw, ruled that, yes, but the more serious the thing that is said against you in a civil matter, the better the standard of proof has to be. In other words, you, you need to be pretty jolly sure that the evidence you've got is really sufficient to come objectively to a conclusion that this person did this particular thing. Now, in my case, it's a defamation case uh, where I'm saying I've been accused of certain, uh, uh, certain crimes. And th th therefore, the Brigginshaw principle, if applied, says, yes, well, okay, that means that those who accused you of that, which was the which was a news news corp, have to prove on the balance of probabilities the truth of the accusation, which they undertook to do, and that the judge in making his decision can't just be the bare, you know, fifty one percent, forty nine percent. It has to be a real sense of the 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 facts established. Are of such a kind that they don't, they're not just vague, that they really do indicate that this person did this particular act. In my case, uh, the judge uh, did not properly uh, conduct the trial according to Brigginshaw. 
he made an attempt to do so. What was worse was when it went to the full court of the Supreme Court, three judges on appeal, they simply repudiated Riginshaw, saying that it no longer applied in civil matters in Australia. Imagine my... Now, that's not true because it was used in Geoffrey Rush's defence, wasn't it? Absolutely. Uh, Justice Wigney there, um, in examining the evidence uh, to support the view that Rush had behaved uh, in a sexually criminal manner, uh, the judge applied Briganshaw quite explicitly and said that, that the evidence did not support a proof. And so Briganshaw uh, was applied. And that was uh, in the Eastern States in a federal court. Now, when the that came out, because I had previously made an appeal to the High Court and they just were, weren't interested in hearing my appeal at all, I went back to the High Court and said, hey, this case of Geoffrey Rush, who's a very celebrated actor, uh, he's been found that he has been defamed and Briganshaw was applied. In my case, Briganshaw was not applied. How about it? And they wrote back saying, not interested. We won't hear your appeal. You don't get leave to appeal. And on mm. the day that happened, that evening, a case was decided in Adelaide by the full court of the Supreme Court in a defamation matter uh, and Briganshaw was applied. So the only case where it hasn't been applied is my case. And you weren't just a, uh, sorry, you weren't just a Catholic priest. You were a high profile public figure and Catholic priest. So uh, the- It's absolutely the, true. Uh, I've been in commercial radio for 34 years. Mm. I've been a journalist, uh, a, a feature writer for the advertiser in the past. I was very, very well known and hence, I think, the desire to tear me down. Despicable. Now, just briefly, um, I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, people reading your book. It's, uh, it's quite detailed. It's, it's going to be especially uh, fond for people who are interested in the uh, aspects of religious freedom that it speaks about, as well as uh, those people who are interested in, in the law and, and how this has been. Uh, I believe, a miscarriage of justice, a, a perversion of justice, uh, as well as an example of, of bigotry. Um, you can buy this book, by the way, at lockpress.com. Uh, so grab a hold of it there. Uh, and uh, if you um, would like to get a copy for somebody uh, for Christmas, this is going to be a book that uh, is going to be well enjoyed and, and very popular. Uh, Father John, what exactly do you think is behind the, uh, the I think it's everywhere, I'm, I'm trying to, ubiquitous is the word I'm looking for. What's behind the ubiquitous inclination to believe all accusers and to doubt everybody who's accused, uh, to presume their guilt um, long before there's any kind of trial uh, outside the media? What has come to light in recent years has been the heinous incidents of child sexual abuse uh, in all churches, but the Catholic Church was singled out by the Royal Commission, I think, foolishly and unjustly. But anyway, it certainly existed in a manner totally unacceptable. Uh, the state was excluded from any serious consideration, but we know more sexual abuse of children goes on in state institutions Shame. than in religious ones. However, um, there was this uh, moral panic, as we're about the Catholic Church, uh, such that 
a priest as a priest is more likely to be abused than not. In the case of George Pell, allegations made against him which were preposterous mm. were found by courts to be true until finally the High Court intervened and unanimously ruled against it. It was quite clear that Pell was targeted because he was a Christian leader in high regard across the community, not just among Catholics, but by and large. Fellow Christians, we know who we are, whether evangelical, as I say, or Catholic, we know who we are, mm. what we believe in. Now, he was, he was lampooned and sent to jail for a crime he didn't commit. This panic has led people to the view that you're allowed to say that you must always believe the accuser, mm. that the person accused, if he is a Christian minister, a Catholic priest, is bound to be guilty. This is a, the panic which has swept the community, fueled by newspapers like the advertiser and other forms of media, which demonize ministers of religion generally as likely abusers of children. And the facts do not support that. It is not true. That there is a, has been an unacceptable uh, incidence of abuse, that is true. Uh, the churches have admitted that, all of them, mm. and have mm. taken action. But, I mean, that's quite different from arguing, for example, from the particular to the, uh, the general to the particular. Now, mm. in my case, uh, evidence, uh, my the Archbishop that ordained me was unable to give evidence because by that time he was not competent to do so and died with a year or two later. Uh, the judges in the, in the Supreme Court said, well, that's not relevant because his, his evidence wouldn't have mattered anyway because uh, church hierarchies are notorious when it comes to questions of abuse. Now, here is in a case judgment importing a popular prejudice. Mm. Who is to say that because some bishops covered up sexual abuse, therefore this one did? It's like saying, you know, uh, Australians are peaceful, therefore the man in front of me with a gun is likely to be peaceful too. You cannot, it's just fundamental logical yeah. errors were made throughout this process and a lot of it was based upon a cultural prejudice against uh, I think religious believers generally and against Catholic priests in this case in particular. And so one of the journalists who has uh, gone after you and, and the person for whom you, you sought a, a judgment of defamation uh, has uh, continued and, and uh, restarted his, his campaign against your character. And so you've self-published this book now, um, setting the record straight, but also providing, I think, a lot of insight and explanation uh, for uh, the rest of Australians on what to look out for. And I, I wish we could talk longer about um, what hope there is of remediating and reforming uh, bad judgments and uh, less than competent or, or integrous uh, ju judiciary members, uh, jurists. Um, but uh, thank you for writing it. Uh, thank you for publishing it. And uh, if you would like to get your copy of Supreme Injustice, uh, Guilty Until Proven Not Catholic, you should head to lockpress.com right now, get a few copies for yourself and for the people you like for Christmas. Father John, thank you so much for writing it and for your time on the Church and State Show this year. And I appreciate all your help, Dave. Thank you.
Hello world, it's Daisy Cousins here and I'm pleased to inform you that I am now appearing on ADH TV every week, twice a week for your viewing pleasure. So make sure you tune in to my two shows where I am interviewing some of the most interesting people on the planet as well as covering all the latest in news and current events. Make sure you tune in, I can't wait to see you there. Well, finally in this episode of the final show for Church and State this year, we have the third book that you need to buy for yourself as well as everyone you love for Christmas. And that is a book written by a frequent guest on the Church and State show, Professor Augusto Zimmerman, and co-written by his mentor, uh, Professor Emeritus Gabriel Munz. They have written a book called The Unlucky Country, and it is a follow-on thought to Donald Horne's classic book written in the 60s by the title of The Lucky Country. Augusto Zimmerman, welcome to The Church and State Show. Thank you so much, David. It's a pleasure to talk with you again. Now, tell me why you thought uh, that classic book, The Lucky Country, uh, needed a response, a, a follow-up book by the title of The Unlucky Country. Well, because uh, things have changed. And uh, when I came to this country 21 years ago, I experienced uh, a reality that has no longer uh, been the same. Uh, it's a country where we have embraced experiments that have destroyed many aspects of that beautiful environment that we enjoyed in the, in the past. And um, what Professor Moyes and I are trying to do is to explain what has gone so terribly wrong and to see if we can actually address these matters in order to turn this country into a lucky country again. It, it sounds like quite a negative title, and, and I think any honest assessment of Australia uh, right now uh, deserves a dose of reality and, and not some kind of cockeyed optimism. Um, and and I, I think especially this decade, we've seen that uh, many of the things that we thought to be true uh, about ourselves, about Australia and about Australian Christians and conservatives um, are not as true as we wished they were. But is there a note of optimism? I, I note in your previous answer, you said what we can do about it. Yes, of course. The, the final chapter gives us uh, a hope. And it's important before I... I address the, the reasons for hope that we acknowledge the problems that are taking place. Mm. And there are so many problems uh, connected with the behavior of our uh, ruling classes and uh, what they tend to do to us, what they have already done to us. And mm. it's impossible to feel lucky when you feel under so much pressure and so much, I would even go and say, oppression at this point because the government is about to introduce even laws to remove your right to be able to express your opinion. So this is becoming more fascistic than ever. Yes. And what you experienced in the past was a liberal democracy. It's a joke for Scott Morrison to continue to regard Australia as a liberal democracy when they don't feel free at all and each day yeah. more oppressed. I, I wear a T-shirt and I sell a T-shirt on the Good Source uh, merch store called one and free and it's obviously based on the new words to the Australian national anthem and it, and it has the the flag of Australia there as well and 
And I acknowledge as I sell and design these, uh, these ads, look, it's this t-shirt, it's, it's designed to, to be patriotic and, and share and promote a love of country. But I also acknowledge that it's very uh, faithful. It's a, it's a prayer of faith, really, you know, saying, Amen, God, I agree that we will be a nation that is one and free. Bring it to pass. Make it happen. Uh, because the truth is we're not uh, anywhere near either as united or as liberated as we need to be. Augusto, you've got 20 chapters in the book. Um, and for those who would like to have an insight into the contents um, on, on my encouragement to purchase it, um, I'm just going to go through and list the chapters right now, and, and then I'll pick a couple to, to ask you about in detail. So chapter one is the transformation from lucky to unlucky country. Chapter two is the attack on free speech. And other chapters are the COVID-19 tyranny, the secularization of Australia, the climate change religion, a country divided by race and ethnicity, historical revisionism, the rise of the welfare state, the woking of Australia's corporations, the woking of Australia's political class and judiciary, the denial of biological reality, the demise of Australia's education system, universities and academic freedom, the destruction of Australia's economy, the attack on marriage and family, affirmative action and feminism, invasions of privacy and the artificial intelligence menace, Australia's place in the world, the undermining of the rule of law, and finally, the optimistic chapter, bringing back the lucky country. Uh, Augusto, I'm interested in the welfare state. This is something mm. that I don't think gets discussed enough. It just gets accepted as ubiquitous. It's here to stay and there's nothing we can do about it. Uh, tell us about how the <coughs> welfare state has helped transform Australia into the unlucky country. Well, this is an important topic. It's well connected with the other chapter about dividing the nation into ethnic, <clears throat> cultural and other lines. Because uh, a couple or a segment of a society has been enslaved by the state. Mm -hmm. uh, if the person cannot have his or her own autonomy as an individual to make his own choices, uh, obviously, he's not a free person, and he starts to be each day more dependent on others in order to survive. That removes from the person a sense of accountability. And, uh, you know, uh, we say in our communities that um, the, road, the road leading to hell is paved with good intentions. I'm not right. saying that the intentions were necessarily evil, but now has resulted into very undesirable outcomes whereby some people now uh, depend on welfare in order to survive. So rather than actually being a band-aid that can fix things, it's actually turning entire populations into slaves because they ultimately depend on this to survive. And in the process of uh, uh, being enslaved, they are also becoming less responsible for themselves and for the family and loved ones. And that also has a consequence in terms of the destruction of the family unit right. as a result. And why in chapter five have you referred to climate change as a religion? 
Because it is a religion, uh, and some of the assumptions of climate change are not based on real science, and the way they behave is quite um, uh, inquisitorial. So if you dare to express opinions that are contrary to the establishment, they will cancel you, they will consider you uh, as an heretic, mm. and they are going to do everything they can to destroy your life. Obviously, climate change is a natural phenomenon. We know that the climate has always changed from the very beginning. That's right. Uh, and so when they say that the climate is changing, uh, it's an obvious uh, uh, statement. But then they add several elements that are quite anti-human. For instance, blame, blaming human beings for the problem and adding child sacrifice even, mm. because now some of these environmentalists say that we need to dramatically reduce the population. Some talk even about the wonders and the good things uh, uh, involving uh, a virus that can potentially kill 90% of the population. They think this is a good thing. Mm. And also even women now, married women, uh, claiming that by killing their unborn children, they are doing something that is regarded as uh, being environmentally friendly. Mm. So this is a, a tragic Shame. thing. It reminds me of the old religions that demanded sacrifices in order to appease the gods of the weather. It, it, you're right. It, it's so barbaric and regressive. Uh, and yeah. uh, there are so many hallmarks of, of dogma and inquisition, as you said, uh, that... Uh, religion's not a, a wrong wrong word to it. Uh, Augusto, you have a academic career. You're a professor who's worked in major Australian universities, and you're now um, in in charge of developing a law school in a uh, in a Christian uh, tertiary institution in Western Australia. A very worthy and necessary project. Tell me about uh, your chapter, the, the universities and academic freedom. How is this sector uh, contributing to Australia, the unlucky country? Well, we know that there are some examples of academics who have paid a very heavy price for challenging the consensus of the ruling classes. Uh, Professor Peter Reed, for instance, lost his job because right. he had a, a different point of view. So that tells me that academic freedom is becoming uh, a wishful thinking. Mm. And even the High Court of Australia, rather than protecting academic freedom, what they did was to endorse the cancelling of an academic who dared to be bold and courageous. Yep. And to, in my opinion, even to make truthful statements based on a more... Um, uh, sophisticated scientific research. So um, everybody who dares to have a different opinion uh, is uh, at the risk of being summarily cancelled and persecuted even when they happen to have tenure. So te no, not even tenure is a guarantee that we, we, you might not lose your job if you uh, defy or challenge the worldview or the assumptions of the fascist, fascistic academic elite that controls 99.9% of universities in Australia. The Unlucky Country is a book that's destined to be a classic in Australian political literature. Uh, and it's, uh, I think, a must buy, a must read for not only yourself, but also 
your children. It's a great overview of uh, many, many issues that Australia is facing. And the battle rages on for truth and justice and liberty and uh, the kind of virtuous, not virtue signaling, but an authentic virtuous foundation to character and public policy. Uh, and of course, uh, just listing the problems isn't enough, but finishing with the optimistic conclusion that the authors do is uh, a, a very good way to tie the entire book together. You can get your copy uh, for yourself and your Christmas presents at lockpress.com. That's lockpress.com, L-O-C-K-E, press.com. And uh, look for the title, The Unlucky Country. Uh, Augusto Zimmerman, uh, thank you very much for writing the book and your continued service to uh, thought and uh, intellectual advances in Australia. Thank you so much. Let's bring back the lucky country to us. We deserve it. And let's have a, a good fight against the establishment. Thank you very much. Amen. Well said. Well, I hope you enjoyed those brief conversations with Topher Field, uh, John Fleming, and Augusto Zimmerman. Those three books, uh, Good People Break Bad Laws, Supreme Injustice, and The Unlucky Country, are all available for pre-order on lockpress.com. And if you're watching this a little bit later, they are ready to be shipped, lockpress.com. And uh, we will get those out to you as soon as possible. What a great gift to give to your friends. A, a book, one of those or all of those, are great Christmas presents uh, for the people that you know. And of course, each of them will help fund The Good Source, this show, this platform and mission in independent media. They will also help those authors make more money as self-publishers out of the work and the thinking that they are doing so that we can help to make conservative Christian thinking in this nation more financially sustainable, a very important thing to achieve. And don't forget, we love to have your support for this mission. It's because of the regular monthly supporters to The Good Source that we're able to do this mission year in, year out. And we've been doing it for a while now. Uh, the other thing that is really helpful is church and state. The church and state summit, not the weekly show, uh, is on in March, uh, March 8 and 9. We're going to be having two days, over 20 sessions of the world's best speakers, Australia's best speakers here in this nation with Father Calvin Robinson from the UK and GB News heading up a summit where we will be talking about reformation. Many different topics, of course, but the overarching theme is how do we get back to the basics? How do we get back to authenticity? How do we get back to the Australia, the foundations that made us such a nation of destination for people fleeing uh, much lesser cultures and political contexts? This is a nation to be, but we are fast vandalizing it, turning it from a lucky country into an unlucky country. We need a cultural, spiritual, and political reformation if we want to have this quality or better in a hundred years time for our children's children's children. You can buy all of those books at lockpress.com. You can get tickets for the Church and State Summit. Early bird discounts of 25% are now on sale 
at churchandstate.com.au forward slash register, as well as tickets for upcoming events in Tasmania and South Australia. We look forward to seeing you at the Church and State Summit, but this is the last episode of the show for 2023, and we will be back after the summer break. This has been the Church and State Show in 2023. I'm Dave Pello, and my sincere prayer for your Christmas is that God would bless this nation and you. Merry Christmas. Today, we need a special kind of courage. Not the kind needed in battle, but a kind which makes us stand up for everything that we know is right, everything that is true and honest. We need the kind of courage that can withstand the subtle corruption of the cynics so that we can show the world that we are not afraid of the future.